You are now listening to a Fit Plus Love production. For many triathletes and anybody who's an athlete that's pushing themselves, surfing can be something just like riding a bike or swimming can be something that's very like leisurely and relaxing, or it can be a really intense experience that pushes you to your limits. So for me, I do both versions of that. But I think the parts of surfing that I love the most are the times that I'm pushing my edges and experiencing a moment that was the culmination of everything that I've done up to this point in the training and the experience and all the hours of paddling and catching and riding waves that allowed me to achieve riding this new this new wave this bigger wave and putting myself in that position and in making it and saying okay well i did that i did something i didn't think that i could do and certainly like five years ago like there's no way i could have even imagined doing that and i think the same thing happens in business and surfing over the years has gone hand in hand with that, where I have this sort of, sort of reinforcement, this physical test, and met physical and mental test, and then you carry that over into business in a way that is mostly a mental test, and and you push yourself beyond what you thought was was possible. That was Nathan Garrison. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Today on the podcast, I sync up with Nathan Garrison, co-founder of Shark Bands a very cool company that makes shark-repelling devices for fishing, swimming, surfing, and diving. I discovered shark bands in Hawaii while cycling with a group of triathletes and swimmers who swear by this device, and I knew I had to find out who the cool innovators were behind this game-changing product. Before we dive in, shout out to our sponsors at Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. It transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed nutrition recommendations you need to optimize your health. Get 20% off today at insidetracker.com slash Marnie on the move or use our code cheers Marnie. Now, Back to my conversation with Nathan. During our conversation, I get the scoop on where the idea for Shark Bands began, how the product and company have grown, how it all works, the rigorous product testing, and the opportunities and challenges the company has faced along the way, from having President Obama wearing Shark Bands on vacation and sales booming, to a complete pivot during the pandemic. Plus, Nathan sheds light and offers insight on sharks from bulls to great whites and just how smart they really are. And I get the scoop on Nathan's favorite waves of all time. Yes, spoiler alert, he is a surfer and his father, co-founder, is a diver. Before we get started, if you are interested in getting your hands on one of these awesome shark bands, use our code for Marnie Bands, the number four all caps, Marnie fans, on their website, sharkbands.com. Now, on to my conversation with Nathan. So great to meet you, first of all, Nathan, and to connect with Shark Bands. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. I'm, I'm stoked you reached out. I was in Hawaii in April in Kona, and I was on a local bike ride that I dropped into with a bunch of people that are cyclists. And 
they were all talking about shark bands. And they all were, you know, they're all triathletes. They're all going to swim after the bike and they all wear shark uh-huh. bands. I heard all these athletes talking about shark bands. So I wanted to hear more about your super cool company and like where it started. Well, that's super cool to hear that you got introduced in this like really natural way through yeah. a group of athletes that you knew in a sport that you do. And it obviously makes a lot of sense. And we love working with triathlon teams and swim groups and anybody like that that's doing training or just community swim groups in the ocean. So from, you know, LA, San Diego to Florida, up the East Coast, we, uh, we definitely have a variety of those that we work with. So and I'm sure you um, cool work with that there's another one too. I don't even know yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really wide demographic. I mean, so going to shark bands, shark bands, my dad and I created it about almost eight years ago now, um, launched it in 2014 and had the first one shipping January, 2015. And what it is, is for people that are listening is it's a band that you wear on your wrist or ankle. It's about the size of a like medium to large wrist watch. And you put it on, there's no batteries or charging and it emits a field which disrupts a shark's electrical sense. So sharks, when they're in the ocean, they're hunting, they're navigating, and they can detect really weak electrical fields in the water. And when you're wearing this, it emits a field which is many times greater than what they would encounter in their normal environment. And so it overwhelms that sense. It's sort of like having a really bright light shine in your eyes in a dark room. So it doesn't harm the shark. It's just an unpleasant sensation and it signals that you might be harmful and that there could be danger. So to go look for a meal elsewhere. I love that. So that's how it works. And it also deters stingrays, which is a new project that we've been working on with the Moat Marine Institute, uh, Moat Marine Laboratory, to do a bunch of testing on the effectiveness of stingrays so that we can hopefully help people out with stingray issues, which as we know is like one of the most painful things you can ever experience getting stung by a stingray. Still have not had that happen to me, thankfully, knock on wood. And uh, obviously a lot more common than a shark attack. So trying to help people out with that. And also fishermen that are having issues with stingrays and aquaculture. So a lot of applications for that. Do fishermen have a lot of issues with stingrays? Mostly stepping on them in the, in the Gulf and stuff, but in some cases they are eating um, certain certain target catch that they have as well. So, uh, and then in aquaculture, they're eating clams and oysters. So, like a, a clam or oyster farm could be devastated by like packs of stingrays during the summer that would just come in and eat everything. So, they're like the deer of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty to look at. You can even pet them sometimes, no. but yeah, yeah exactly. they come in and eat, eat your garden. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so how, what was the inspiration behind Shark Bands? Like, how did you guys start the company? Yeah, I think like you, it's from a bit of self-preservation, um, just wanting to have a way to reduce the risk. Uh, it became personal for me because I had a close friend uh, growing up since we were about eight or nine years old. Uh, he got attacked by a shark when we were like 18, 19, when we were in college and it was a bull shark in Charleston, South Carolina. And it came up from underneath the board when he was surfing out at Folly beach, grabbed him by the ankle, pulled him off the board and thrashed around and, um, let him go. But it tore up his foot pretty badly. Um, he made a full recovery, but you know, it definitely affected the rest of our friends and myself who are, you know, thinking yeah. that this wasn't something that could really realistically happen to any of us. Right. And then I moved to California when I was 23 and there was a, a guy who lived on my street who within a couple of months got killed by a great white, uh, surfing at a pretty near a place that I also surfed a lot. And that was, a you know, pretty, horrific and obviously super tragic incident and then another person got killed at the same place two years later like to the day and that was kind of the point that I had enough skills in business and product development that I could turn what I wanted to create actually into a a product instead of just 
like thinking about, oh, what if this existed? I actually, I had been working in the footwear industry at, uh, at Tiva, you know, yeah, Tiva, Teva, Tiva, however people yeah. pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great company that I worked for, for a while. That was kind of like the start of my career. So being in project management there, I entered, I, I was in discussion with all the different departments and began to learn what it took to take a product from concept all the way to the shelf at retail. And that was kind of like my business school for this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so when I, I set out to actually create this with my dad, then I knew the steps that it was going to take. And of course, I didn't know exactly how to do all of them. But, you know, that's that's starting your own business, right? You just yeah. know enough people that can help you along the way and, and you make some mistakes and you figure it out. So the really the key element was licensing the the science behind this. There's, yes. there's patents that cover the use of permanent magnets to deter sharks and stingrays. And we licensed the patents from a group of scientists that had tested and researched this technology since about 2005 when it was discovered. So there was about like eight, nine years of research that had already gone into this um, in Bahamas, Florida, South Africa, that showed that a, a whole wide range of species could be deterred uh, using these powerful permanent magnets. Okay. So it had been trialed somewhat in fishing, um, but it was very difficult to put into practice because it was <clears throat> the magnets would stick together and things like that. And it wasn't, um, hadn't been done quite right, even though there was efficacy that had been proven. So we said, let's figure out how to take this, put it into a product that anybody can use that spends time in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that and it doesn't impact performance and it's not expensive, then hopefully we'll have a winner because I would wear that. Yeah. And I think a lot of other people would too. I would totally wear and go in the ocean and trust the technology, especially after what I've heard from people who actually swim right near sharks in Hawaii. It's such a cool product, but also the design is really nice too. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of, of time and, and effort on that because again, it's like the, there's a phrase, the best safety device is the one that you'll actually wear. Yeah. And yeah. that goes across the board, right? So we knew we had to make it as appealing as possible for people to want to use it. And, and that, it doesn't interfere with timing chips either, which I know is an important right, thing. Right, especially for, for races. For yeah. yeah we, we actually had that like properly tested uh, in Australia. So, you know, what did it take to get it done like off the ground initially? And how have you grown over the years? The biggest challenges in getting it off the ground are, are manufacturing. I mean, anytime you have a physical product that has any level of complexity to it, and it's one thing to make one of something, you know, right. you can go in your kitchen and you can make a pie pretty easily. But if you want to make a thousand, a thousand pies, it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot harder. So same thing is true with uh, any kind of physical product that someone's going to wear or, or use in any physical capacity. So the manufacturing is definitely the most challenging component of that because mm -hmm. anytime you're going to manufacture something like that overseas, you're just, you know, you're going to have a lot of quality control stuff that you have to work through. Um, we had some initial challenges with that early on, um, with like the first version of the product. And then when we launched Sharkman's 2 in 2016, we did that in collaboration with uh, a really high quality sports watch manufacturer that has made all of our products ever since. And yeah. they're like one of the top um, manufacturers in that world. And so it's not even a leap really at all to to make our product when you already have an expert at watches. Right. Uh, and I tried to get in touch with this person for like two years. And one of the things about manufacturing is it's often very, very difficult to find out who's making a product for a brand. Right. So right. I knew some brands that I was like, if I could make it like this, then we would be so stoked. This would make people very happy. I would have no issues with, quality, durability, waterproofing, anything. And um, through a mutual friend, I had the connection made to this gent who runs our current manufacturing company. And that really helped us like take it to the next level. He jumped on board, he got really excited about it. And 
you know, thanks to him. And that was a couple years in. That was uh, about 18 months in. Yeah. So that had been like an initial issue with scaling and going into retail and just making sure that like, you know, you were going to have a super low defect rate. And when I say defect, I mean like not like the, the technology was sound, like it still was going to deter sharks, but maybe like the band quality would have an issue or the clasp or something like that. And we just wanted it to be like bulletproof. So now it's like, everything's got a, a year long warranty and we sell, you know, five year warranties and um, you know, the defect rate is like infinitesimally small. So having like a really high quality product now is something that has allowed us to, to do a lot. And, you know, we work with, different Navy SEAL groups and different um, like foreign militaries, like special forces and stuff like that. So having like that high level of validation. Yeah, um, that's huge. Also is, is great. You know, President Obama wore it on his Hawaii vacation in 2020, which was like a serious freak out moment. That was pretty, pretty epic. Did you sell out? It was in January when it happened. So it was like the opposite of our high season and like right after holiday. So it did fine. But like if that had happened in like, let's say June or July, it would have gone really crazy, I think. Yeah, that's an, a good problem to have, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If we sell everything, that's the best kind of problem. That's amazing. So yeah, I mean, going, the, I could say the challenges were like manufacturing, right? And then, um, you know, trying to figure out all the right, pricing models so that you can incorporate distributors and retailers and like, okay, are we going to take on more work so we can make better margins? Like that's always a big piece. Right. Um, or do we outsource this so that we can focus on our time on other things like marketing or new product development? So it's about figuring out balance that, you know, our team is, is pretty small. It's five people. And then we have a lot of different agencies and um, international partners that we work with, but like our core team making most of the things is, like about is about five of us. And then we have the two scientists also. Um, so yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's about a, continuously adapting the technology into new applications that are beneficial for both ocean goers and now fishing. So our big thing that we've been working on the last like two years or so is adaptation of the magnetic technology into fishing products. So the, the there's a big problem in many fisheries around the world with shark, what's called shark depredation, where you hook a fish and you're reeling it up and a shark comes in and eats it before you can get it into the boat. And if you've ever been fishing in any tropical zone around the world, this is quite possibly happened to you. And you can imagine if this is happening very often with a lot of different boats out, then it's harmful to the fishery because the total number of fish that is being caught is much greater than the limit of fish that actually like lands in the boat. That's let's say it's 20 by regulation, but you caught 40 to get there because the sharks ate half a month, then that's not sustainable for the fishery. So right. what we're trying and to the do scarier thing is like, why are the sharks eating the fish? <laughs> but well, it's like a dinner bell ringing that, for them, yeah, you know? Yeah. 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 It's they they're smart. They're like dogs, you know, they don't need, if they don't have to work it's hard to get something and you put it right in front of them then they're, they're gonna just go gonna go it. and eat it yeah. yeah it's like the dog bowl so they hear the they hear the boats and they know and in areas they've actually shown in studies that in areas where uh there's lots of fishing activity the sharks know to go there even before the lines hit the water but if you take the same boat and go into like a marine preserve where fishing's not allowed then the sharks take like way way longer to show up interesting so yeah yeah, they know the, the zones and and they go there and they uh, they wait for the fishermen to show up. So they're you know they're so there's smarter a need than in the market in the world of fishing. Yeah, yeah, and that expands beyond like the recreational fishing into commercial fishing and trying to uh, come up with solutions for long lines, which is like the biggest issue with shark bycatch uh, in the world. Which like when you read those crazy stats about like tens of millions of sharks being killed unnecessarily per year and most of that's happening on long lines uh, largely in the, in the pacific but also in some other areas too so um, if we can help reduce that bycatch then it's a huge conservation win and it's a win for the fishermen because in many instances the sharks are not uh, economically beneficial thing to catch right. and in some cases it's not even really legal so it's uh it's a win for sharks and for fishermen 
So have you gotten to know a lot about sharks in this process, like the psychology? Because you said they're like dogs. Yeah. <laughs> have you had some close encounters yourself? Have you done a lot of studies? Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, you in your windsurfing time, have you had any encounters? I saw a barracuda, not a shark, like once under the water, mm -hmm. but I was on the board. A big one? Probably like four feet, five feet. Is that big? I don't it's pretty know. Good, pretty good size. I mean, they get I, up to like eight feet. Yeah. Uh, probably the biggest one that I've seen, but I wasn't in the water. I was scared. <laughs> I was on the board. <laughs> I would like, you, yeah, I'm yeah. like the best windsurfer because I do not fall off the board. <laughs> yeah. That's a big part of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm serious. I mean, for yeah. me, yeah. I, I've had a few encounters. Let's see. I mean, the most significant would be in South Africa was the, was the first time I ever had one. We were there, let's see, I went there on a family vacation, actually. We'd also gone there previously to do some research and testing on a different technology and was there around the Cape Town area and was surfing out, uh, you know, fairly remote beach break, saw the one fin and then I saw the tail as well when you see them together moving then you know that's not a dolphin and it was a yeah. good pretty sizable great white um not far away from me at all so there was that encounter which i actually was wearing our shark deterrent leash that we did in collaboration with an australian surf brand at the time um i went in for about five minutes into the shallows waited to see if i would see it again and then um my brother and I went back out and both had those on. If I hadn't had it, I probably wouldn't have gone back out. Who's to know? Because I might not have known it existed and the waves were really good. Yeah. <laughs> but I uh, uh, went back out. That was the first one. That one was maybe four years ago. And then I had another one in California this past year um, on the Channel Islands. Uh, we spent a lot of time out there uh, surfing on our on our boat and there are, are definitely some sharks out there in yeah. different spots and we saw two in the same day and that was actually the first time I had even seen any out there I saw one on the way to the spot and then I saw another one came right up to the boat after we got out of the water and was a very big shark and it just rolled onto its side and just looked up at us with its eye oh my and god and then turned and swam off just real real cruisy but it was coming in and saying hey i just want to let you know who's boss <laughs> i love it so they are really smart those sharks yeah the great whites are especially smart i mean when you spend time around that species you can and you spend time around other shark species you can see really quickly how much more intelligence they have and how there's this level of awareness that these other sharks don't quite have. So in the some sense, when you do that, it makes you less frightened of them because you realize they're probably less likely to make a mistake and bite you. But at the same time, you also see the power and the ferocity that they have. And if they really want to get you, like there's really nothing that you can do about that. Yeah. So again, like you said earlier, what can I do to show them that I'm not a seal? And that's, <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah. That's basically what this is. You know, it's, it's saying I'm not a seal seal. No seal is emitting this, this thing. So if you sense this, you know, go somewhere and look for a meal because I'm not going to taste very good for you. Not today. But yeah. I mean, one of the misconceptions that people have about sharks is that they, like the taste of people but in general i mean you'll notice pretty much any time like 99 of the time that someone gets bitten that's the end of it and the sharks are not trying to consume the person so right. um, it's just cases of mistaken identity and uh, most of those are just hit and run attacks and this is really designed to show the shark that you're not food before it makes that mistake and, and takes a test bite out of you and of course there's incidences, you know, the, there's no way to be a hundred percent on that. And yeah. um, we're very like upfront about that. It's something that I'm very well aware of. And I accept the risk that anytime I'm going out to a place, I know that 
there could be a shark is, you know, it's a risk I'm willing to take and I'm in their world and I'm going to reduce the risk as best I can with this device. But, um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing guaranteed out there in the wild. Right. I mean, and that, that makes sense. And then, you know, but, so you're a surfer. That's like how you got into this pretty much. I mean, that's, is that your yeah. sport surfing? That's like your yeah, tried and true surfing. Yeah. Surfing's my, uh, my biggest passion that I've put the most time and effort into. Um, I absolutely love it. And I also enjoy free diving and spearfishing. So that'd be like my secondary one that I do a lot of. So how'd you get into surfing? I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I've lived on the ocean my whole life. And I always, even from a young age, before I really even did it, I just felt like it was something that I really wanted to do. That It captivated me. And even before I could really do it, I was buying the magazines and reading the articles and obsessed with the pictures of these beautiful waves. And like, I think like the adventure aspect of it is what's so amazing for me, knowing that there's always another place that I could go to, to experience that place through the lens of surfing, whether it's the cultures, the people, what's underneath the water, the fishing, the diving, but like using this idea of adventuring to a place to try to find new waves or to experience a really special wave that may already be there as something that like endlessly captivates me. And like, like most things in life, the better at them you get, the more fun they become and the more they open up your world. So this is something that seems to never end. And there's always something about it that can get me excited And then, of course, just the sensation of riding a wave is really special. But I think what keeps me so excited about it is how dynamic it can be in in terms of exploring. So getting out into wild places, which is what I love the most, and sharing special experiences in the water with close friends or family. That's those are like the greatest things I do in my life. So what's your Mm -hmm. what's your favorite wave? Um, I would say the two most special experiences I've had in surfing in recent memory, I'd say Jeffrey's Bay in South Africa, which is like every surfer knows this wave. It's like the best right point break arguably in the world. I got to go there in 2017 and that was uh, a bit serendipitous because we were there doing shark research, but a massive swell hit. And (laughs) it was way too big to do any stuff on the shark boats. And we were about three and a half hours from Jeffrey's Bay. So uh, we said, well, (laughs) the waves are too big. We can't go out on the boat. There's one thing we can do is go surfing. So we got to drive up there. It was this like 24 hour swell event and it was perfect. Like, you know, nine, nine out of 10 quality. And it was just this one little window day that I had that I wasn't even there on a surf trip. And it ended up being like one of the best days of surf in my life. So that was spectacular. And then getting to go to my, I took my dad to French Polynesia for his 70th birthday last year. Mm -hmm. And we went to uh, Chopu or Tehupo as the locals call it there, which is like one of the most famous waves in the world. And got to surf that at like a, a reasonable, like uh, entry level size for someone who has not surfed that wave before. How, how, and it was what's, definitely, the, what's the dimensions of the open face of the wave? Um, it was probably like, it was like six to 10 foot faces that day Wow. and really, really glassy and beautiful, beautiful. and barreling wow. and uh, just the most spectacularly beautiful place you can imagine. And the raw power of the ocean there is unlike anything I've experienced before. And getting to watch some of these local kids just toy with it was pretty amazing. And then for some reason they all got out and we had it to ourselves for about 45 minutes. Wow. And that was still during like full on pandemic travel times. Like we, we had to go through a lot of hoops to get there. Yeah. And so it was really uncrowded. So um, kind of a, a little window in time that that's now closed. Uh, but it was uh, the most adrenaline I've felt in the water, I think, would have been that experience. And I will definitely never forget it. Your dad obviously surfs as well. 
He doesn't actually. He was a dive instructor in the 70s in Monterey, California, uh, which is like something I look up to him for. I'm like, how did you do that? Like the technology for wetsuits, the yeah. lack of visibility, the weather, lack of weather forecasting. I mean, just going out and diving in, in Monterey then it must have been like it's pretty raw. So yeah. Um I and then being an instructor too. He has some some good stories about that. So he does diving, not surf. He does. He, does. he doesn't surf. No, okay. he does not surf. So you got to go surf by yourself with your friends or whatever. My brother. Yeah. My brother and I were out there. He was on the boat taking some pictures. If you want to see a picture from that day. Yeah, totally. To yeah. He was taking photos and just kind of admiring just being there. It's like such a place full of so much stimulus that, yeah. I mean, you could sit there on the boat for hours and not even surf and, and be very entertained. So, so you do like, does he drive that. out on the outside of the wave and then drop you and, or do you, did you swim out? In that case, you have the, a boat driver that takes you out okay. and you sit in the channel, this kind of narrow channel in between the two shallower reefs that's a reef pass and you're sitting there on the boat. And that's one of the really thing, unique things about that spot is you get really close to the wave. So it's like, it's like being in like, like, you know, in the Coliseum or something like that. Yeah. These gladiators are right there, just really taking some, some big risks in the water and, and, uh, performing in front of you and it's this uh, all sounds so awesome really to me cool. i love watching it i was just in waikiki you know i could have taken a lesson even though i don't know how to surf i was like oh it's too crowded for me like too many people out there trying to get one wave um yeah yeah you know and there's a place here in long island ditch plains and and long beach the waves are okay you know mm -hmm. they're yeah there's decent. plenty of good waves yeah. that are within striking distance of you guys in the city for sure yeah so are you still in south carolina no um i moved to santa barbara california when i was 23 i packed up all my stuff in a van and just went for it because i knew that i wanted to be there and knew i'd figure it out and yeah it's it's worked out pretty well that certainly not without its its uh trials and tribulations at the beginning do you surf there Oh yeah, that's uh yeah, that's I literally why. went surfing before this podcast. <laughs> um, you were like in your wetsuit. I'm me... like, are you gonna put the video on? You're like, oh let me just yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hold on, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it cold yeah. there? No, it's not the water is not um cold. I mean the water in the winter it gets down to like 55, 57, and then in the summer it can get up to like 70, but it's um you know, you need a wetsuit most of the year, but yeah, I, nice I kind of like wetsuits. Some people hate wetsuits, but I yeah. kind of like them. They're, they're like armor and they help you float. So yeah, I, I like, yeah, I don't mind them. Yeah. I don't mind them either. I, it's so funny that you, I did not realize you're in Santa Barbara. It's like all roads are leading me to Santa Barbara. I actually really, I have not been to Santa Barbara. And I really want to ride my bike. Like, oh, yeah. If you're big, big into riding, it's one of the best places. Yeah. yeah you got to come out and ride. So there's a ride in October called Ride Santa Barbara. And they do the famous Gibraltar climb. Yeah, Gibraltar. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I don't know if I could do that, but I'm, I, you know, as long as I'm oh, on the Oh, you for yeah. sure, you for sure could do that. If you've done a triathlon, you got this. No problem. There's also a company called Sun Potion that. Oh, is, yeah. Uh -huh. you know Scott? Yeah. Scott and my brother are good friends. My brother is in that same world. He has a superfoods company that he's had for about 10 years called Imlakesh Organics. And they just are about to launch a plant-based meat product through a new brand called Chi Foods. Um, which I've got to hook you guys up with. Yeah. So Scott and Sun Potion, what about him? How did you guys get connected? He's friends with a lot of people that I'm friends with. And when I first started my podcast, he was one of the first guests to be on. And I really, he's such a cool guy. I love his story and I, I love mm -hmm. his products. They're amazing products. Yeah. I mean, I use, like I just finished some lion's mane and some cordyceps. I was hoping it would help mm -hmm. with like increasing oxygen to my blood, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I will take everything as we started mm -hmm. this conversation. I will do whatever it takes to get rid of COVID except like regular normal medicine. Except drink bleach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> except drink bleach. And all, like so, no, but it's, it's crazy. But yeah, so I know Scott. I love that company. They were like one of my original sponsors of the podcast too. And like oh, they great. don't really sponsor podcasts. I mean, but I figured like Santa Barbara, wellness, athletics, like people know each other. Yeah, for sure. You definitely need to come out and ride. I mean, I it sounds like you already know plenty of people here, but I have 
plenty of diehard friends that would go ride that thing with you in a second. Really, I'm like seriously going to organize like a group. 60 mile, there's a 100 mile ride. There's a 60 mile ride. There's different like elevations. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like it's stupid to come all the way to Santa Barbara and only ride 60 miles. But <laughs> that's just yeah. until I get there and I see the climbs. Do you do mountain bike stuff too? Like any more enduro type stuff? Or, no, um... I, I haven't. Well, I have. When I was younger, I was really into mountain mm-hmm. biking and I would go and just like locally in Vermont on the East Coast. But Mm-hmm. I don't do any like gravel is what I would like to do. But like, I literally live in Manhattan and I can barely do road cycling. There's- You've got this. No problem at all. How has surfing kind of like empowered you and helped you navigate in your business and, and building shark bands as a brand and a company? Mm, that's a good question. I think like for many triathletes and anybody who's an athlete that's pushing themselves. Yeah. Surfing can be something just like riding a bike or swimming can be something that's very like leisurely and relaxing, or it can be a really intense experience that pushes you to your limits. So for me, I do both versions of that, but I think the parts of surfing that I love the most are the times that I'm pushing my edges and experiencing a moment that was the culmination of everything that I've done up to this point in the training and the experience and all the hours of paddling and catching and riding waves that allowed me to achieve riding this new, this new wave, this bigger wave and putting myself in that position and in making it and saying, okay, well, I did that. I did something I didn't think that I could do. And certainly like five years ago, like there's no way I could have even imagined doing that. And I think the same thing happens in business and surfing over the years has gone hand in hand with that, where I have this sort of sort of reinforcement, this physical test and physical and mental test. And then you carry that over into business in a way that uh, is mostly a mental test right and and you push yourself beyond what you thought was was possible and there's been you know there's been really challenging moments in this business and you you just keep pushing through them and you think about the lessons that your mentors have taught you you look at others in other businesses and what their stories are. You know, you listen to podcasts like this and you hear great stories from people that faced a a challenge that seemed insurmountable and they figured out how to solve that problem. And I think surfing also teaches you very quick twitch reactions and and problem solving in the moment. And that's been something I think I've always had a knack for, which is, I think most people who have started and run a successful small business know that you're not going to know the answer to everything and you have to problem solve and figure stuff out. And in a way that you're not an expert at these skills, you know, you have to learn new skills constantly and you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think serving teaches you that too, how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You're going to get pounded. You're going to be underneath the water, not being able to breathe. And you might hit the bottom. You might get hit in the head with your board. You might see a very large shark. (laughs) You have to (laughs) You have to keep your cool in all of those moments because if you panic, then nothing good will ever come from that. And I think the same thing happens in business, certainly in one like this, where any small business, especially dealing with pandemic stuff, I mean, wow, you know, like yeah. in March 2020, our business went down like 97% in really? like a week. Wow. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, okay, <laughs> what are we going to do here? And that's a long story of its own. <laughs> what did you do? You did wanna... you go surfing? No, well, I probably did some of that to maintain sanity for sure. It's hard. Um, it was hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What did you do in the pandemic when things went 
right? I mean, I feel like that's a whole, po- I, I feel like there should be a book and a podcast that just goes yeah. in specifically to everyone who is running small businesses and collecting stories. I'm sure there's probably already exists, but well, it takes three years to do a book. So it might not be out okay, yet. Well. <laughs> It'll be called the pivot. I, yeah. We're going to start seeing those, the big pivot. We'll start, we'll start seeing those come out pretty soon here. And there'll, I'm, I'll definitely be buying those and reading them. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will hear stories of some, some very creative and heroic things that people pulled off to, to not go under. There'll be I mean, a class us, in like colleges. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, for us, we, I mean, it was the craziest experience I've had in my life. We, um, we had this manufacturing network that I spoke to in China and they actually came to us and said, Hey, we've put together a network of medical supply company of factories that can make medical equipment. And we're now making it. And we realized that there's this huge shortage of this do you have any clients in your country that would want this? And this was literally like day, <laughs> day probably like seven or eight of the lockdown when it happened, whatever that oh was God. like March 18th or something. Yeah. And we had to act like instantaneously and it was either like, do we want to go on this road or not? And we, we went for it ended up supplying tons of medical equipment to the, the one of the big hospital systems in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, and got them a ton of stuff that they needed that nobody else could could get them, which was like, how did we, how were we the people that did that? <laughs> you know, That's amazing, it was like this though. Sort of pinchy moment. And the, there was this whole, Boeing actually flew for free a bunch of the stuff from China landed it in Charleston at their headquarters and then the governor and all the politicians from South Carolina came out, held this, held this big press conference in front of all of the medical equipment that had been landed on the runways, all in these pallets. And we're watching this on TV and seeing pictures of it on all these major news websites and the stuff that we brought was like sitting behind them. And it was this like completely surreal moment. Of course, nobody mentions who had anything to do with like really getting it there. <laughs> like right. Zero Shark credit. And I don't even want yeah. any of the credit. I'm like, you know, don't even give me the credit. I don't even care. Yeah. But knowing that like our small team of, of three, four people somehow managed to pull that off and that that's basically what saved our business. Um, it was, uh, it was quite a moment. And I definitely would not wish it on anyone because it was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life, but it was, um, ended up being worth it in the end. How long did you do that for? Was it just the one um, time or were you doing? Were it you was, doing it work? was maybe like four or five months. Yeah. But the point, like getting it from A to B, you know, that much stuff, it just to do one order, would, you know, it took like 60 days or something. Wow. So. I think a lot of businesses pivoted into doing that I, in the in the yeah. fashion industry in New York. I know a lot of brands were doing that. Um, you helped all these people and also like your business kind of survived. But it is a test of spirit for sure uh, as yeah. an entrepreneur no, in a small no. business. Yeah. Yeah. You never you just never know what you're going to end up doing. I mean, yeah. I, I don't have a marine biology background, but this is what I do for a living now. And I'm an expert in shark deterrence. Well, so, I think I think it's amazing do. because you have a product that people will always need because if as long as you're swimming, surfing, fishing, spending time in the water, like this is something that, you know, gives you some kind of, you know, that protects you from becoming a shark's next meal. And um, I see a lot of athletes, like I mentioned when we first started talking, um, Joanna Reeder like was holding up shark mm-hmm. bands and a lot of triathletes and I'm sure like surfers and open water swimmers are wearing shark bands on their ankles when they're in the water. Do you do any like ambassador programs? I mean, I know, you know, are you like reaching out directly to athletes to get them product? Yeah, good question. We definitely do. I think one of the most gratifying things is now we've been in business for seven, eight years is that 
we've actually had so many people write into us that have had an experience with a shark in the wild where they deter a shark of all these different species. And those are definitely the best messages that I ever get. People writing in saying that they deter a tiger shark in Hawaii or a great white in uh, Cape Cod or Oregon or a bull shark in the Florida Keys and um, like dozens and dozens of these at this point from all over the world. And those are the type of people that we can occasionally work with as ambassadors because they've had such a good experience with yeah. the product that they can say, okay, shark bands did this for me. I just want to share this with others um, or athletes like a, a swimmer or a triathlete that use this and it helps them keep their heart rate down because they're not thinking about sharks as much. So they yeah. swim better. Um, or someone that, was just a, a family from Ohio that had kids that were so terrified of the ocean irrationally that they wouldn't go in. And then you give them this and then now the kid will go in the ocean. Yeah. Then he has a great time out there and realizes, hey, like maybe this fear wasn't really founded in the first place. Right. And now I love being in the ocean. And now I actually view this as like a place that I want to be and something that I respect and care about. And now I want to protect it. Now I, when I see these different documentaries about how the ocean needs our help, or I see these news stories, like I, I'm not apathetic anymore, yeah. even though I use, and I used to be terrified of this thing. So, I mean, that's like, that's not like a hypothetical, like that's a lot of real world examples yeah, of you have a lot of, with that type of stuff. You have a lot of customer stories on your website, like testimonials of people that are using the product and like, I said, like people literally told me I needed to get this if I was going to swim in Hawaii that swear by shark bands and use it. So it wasn't even like, yeah, I just found you organically, like through these people. But how do you test the shark bands? Like I'm sure you do a ton of testing and, you know, beyond just the customer stories. Much of the big work in testing was done before we even licensed the patents, right? Like I was yeah. saying, it was about eight or nine years of research that had been done by these scientists that we licensed it from. And they did, there's all sorts of different testing from fishing and captive or to captive sharks, you know, like, yeah. it, but for us, what we usually do is we use, if we're testing the shark bins, we use a dummy and we put him on a surfboard and we put bait in his legs and his feet. And then we put the band on his ankle and we've, had thousands of interaction points with different species of sharks and the dummy under those circumstances, which are absurd because right. no one's like, ever going to be swimming around with bait strapped to them. And there's, and we're like throwing chum around it to get the sharks yeah. to come around. And, yeah. you know, it's like, it's totally unrealistic, but it pushes it to the extreme. And what we want to do is figure out where the limit is, right? Like yeah. if you just put the dummy out there with no bait, in an area where there are sharks, you may have a shark come up and check it out, but it'll encounter it once and it'll probably just leave the area. Yeah. But to keep them around and, and use all this bait, it obviously like pushes it way beyond what it actually is being asked to do in the real world, right? Yeah. All you need to do is send a signal to the shark once that you're not food and then they can leave you alone. But there you're constantly stimulating them and getting them to come back. So uh, we did that was like a big study that we did on bull sharks where we had, I think like 1300 interactions between the sharks and the device with the device on, there were no attacks on the dummy and without it, the dummy was attacked on average of like every 46 seconds or something like that. Wow. Wow. And that study is on your website, just sharkbands.com yeah. mm -hmm. for my listeners. If you want to check it out and read all about it. Yeah. And that's for the wearables. And then what's happened, what's been really cool is with the fishing product, that we can test that really easily in in a very natural environment where we don't have to create some like artificial unrealistic scenario like fishermen are dropping their lines down they're catching a fish the shark's going to come and eat it so you replace the sinker with this device it sits about two to three feet below the tail of the fish you're you can put a camera on the line and then you're reeling the fish up and you can actually see the shark come up to try to eat the fish and boom it runs into this field and wow. it turns off okay, cool and you can repeat that again and again and again without having to do something that creates an unrealistic scenario. So ever since then, 
you know, we didn't have a ton of support from the scientific community just with the wearables because of that problem I described where it's really hard to get a repeatable testable scenario right. with the wearable that proves efficacy in like a real world circumstance. But as soon as you introduce the phishing, then like I said, you have this amazingly easy thing that you can replicate. And when we showed really high efficacy in that, in our testing, then all of a sudden we have these scientists reaching out from different universities, uh, the Western Australian government, all wanting to test this product and put it to use because of the conservation benefits and the economic benefits for the, um, for the recreational fishing industry. So they've now put it to the test independently, both through NOAA in Hawaii and the Western Australian government in some of the islands off the Northwest part of, of Western Australia. And both showed about like a 65, 70% reduction in the amount of sharks lost to depredation, or sorry, amount of fish lost to depredation from sharks. So huge numbers. And we're talking about like, like I said, like serving the shark's favorite meal on a dinner plate to it. And they're still turning away because of this field. So what we're asking them to do with a person in the water is like way less extreme than that. And for us, I think in the bull shark study, like 85% of the time that the shark approached the device, they exhibited some level of like an avoidance behavior. Are there different levels of the magnets and the like signals that sent that are sent out like based upon the wearable or the fishing device? Yeah, good question. The wearable is not as powerful as the fishing device. Fishing device is bigger and it's different shape because it, it's being asked, like I said, it's being asked to, to go a lot farther yeah. than the wearable is. Yeah. This is great. I love talking to you. It's been so awesome. I hope that my listeners are like, you know, a lot of them are doing Kona in October and everybody's swimming now all summer long. Like, yeah, I think people have a lot of questions about it and if people are interested to learn more, like the website has a ton of information, yes. but like you can write it, you know, if you're interested and you have questions, you can write into me, just, you know, write into connect at sharkbands.com or Nathan at sharkbands.com and you can reach me directly from both of those. And I'm happy to, to answer questions and help out anybody in the truck triathlon, swimming community, any, yeah. you know, surfing, whatever it is, um, you know, we're a, an open book and we like working with whoever. So that's great. Yeah. Well, the ocean's an amazing place. I mean, you can go out there and enjoy it and not think about it, especially if, I mean, there's so many other parts of reducing your risk of shark attack, right? Like this is yeah. not something that's like standalone on its own. You know, there's, you there's all sorts of other advice. Yeah. yeah, you just have to be shark smart as well, which we encourage. And we have advice too on the site about different What does that mean? To, that like, what are some things know. that you people should know to be shark smart? Well, you don't really want to go by yourself when you're doing any of these things because you're much more likely to be vulnerable if you're by yourself. And then, you know, it's more likely that sharks are hunting in the morning and the evening and more likely that they're going to make mistakes because of lighting. So like lower lighting. So um, wearing flashy jewelry, um, anything that like catches the light in the water can just attract them. Those are like really easy ones. And that's for, for, for swimming specifically, but also for surfing. But a lot of times the waves are the best in the morning and the evening. So it's like, you know, we're just, we're accepting certain risks. Yeah. I think it's great though. I think it's a great innovation and a great accessory like for and safety device for people who are really swimming in all these races and in the ocean and especially in Kona well it's been so awesome to connect with you as I said earlier thank you what's crazy is that there's more great whites I think in Cape Cod area now than probably anywhere else on the planet what's going on I mean I guess that's a good thing but like why why are they like isn't it cold or they're in the channel or like what's it's all protections and the return of seals in that ecosystem. So the seals are protected and then the sharks were protected. And then gray white sharks take a long time to reproduce. They think they reach sexual maturity, like seven or eight years of okay. age, and they don't produce that many young. So it could take like generations of them for the population to like rebound in a meaningful way, numbers wise. But then of right. course, 
that starts to exponentially increase as you get more of them. So now it's reached that point where there's tons of food and they don't have any predators. So there are heaps of them out there now. But and isn't that a good thing? Or is it like it depends on who you are. I mean, it's a good thing for the ocean, but it's not a good. Or- I mean, yeah, it's nobody has like historical context, right? Like yeah. nobody knows 300 years ago how many of them were out there, you know, or a thousand years ago. Like how? What is like the the proper number? And like, what is what is the right ratio of like seals to sharks? and right because they're eating potential predators yeah Yeah. so it's i don't think anybody like really knows the answer to that right now maybe there's a scientist that i'm sure plenty of scientists have like theories about that that are shark experts but i've never actually read in any shark article a scientist specifically say like this is the number of predators there should be per like this seal population right so I don't, I can't say I know what that number is. And I can say for sure, if I was in Cape Cod, like it's a major concern. The New York Times yeah. did a really good story about it. Uh, last, I think it was last late summer or fall. Yeah. And it was the best like comprehensive shark article I've ever read uh, about that issue and involving all of the different community stakeholders really providing some meaningful data because it's really dangerous for people who are swimming and who are in the water because they're close up they're not like that far out yeah there's they're close up and there's a lot of them so it's a serious issue for people in that area and you know the great the great white is a it's a tricky it's a tricky issue i mean people often ask like why don't you have all this testing on great whites and the answer is you can't test on great whites in the same way that you can test on other shark species because they have different levels of protection for them and because right. of how smart they are. So you're not able in any test to mimic anything that resembles a human or something that's like a human activity in the water when you're doing testing on them. So right. you sort of run into this catch 22 where, okay, you really want to test the efficacy on this species, but at the same time, you can't actually structure a test that's repeatable where you can get real data on how effective a deterrent would be on something that simulates a surfer or a swimmer. So I'm sort of stuck in this weird position where I'd like to be able to do it, but I can't legally do it. Right. Right. uh, Even if I have permits. So it's a, it's really tricky one. And what I'd like to be able to hopefully do is, is some work with the fishing products because that is more, is more, like I was saying, it, it gives a little bit, more leeway but gray whites are not that often responsible for um for shark bite off of of caught fish it does happen in the northeast yeah yeah. and it does happen in actually in baja california off of guadalupe island where there's a lot of tuna during the fall and great whites will eat those yellowfin tuna (laughs) yeah um but it's a short window and it's not super predictable and it doesn't happen so frequently. So it's just, again, it's just really difficult to get real world meaningful interactions between the great white shark and devices with this magnetic technology. And now so you mentioned tricky. you were like free diving. Yeah, I think I think just being under the, under the surface of the water and seeing all the life down there is like what gets me into it. You know, it's, yeah. it's beautiful and fascinating and obviously it's a food source too. I mean, for me, I, if I can get my own food in a wild place and eat that, and then that's, that's really satisfying. So for me to go and spearfish out on the channel islands and be able to, to get fish for me and my partner or me and my brother, you yeah. know, that's, um, that's a really meaningful like, experience. So Super cool. I think, getting that is uh is a big part of it but a lot of times i just go and i won't even shoot anything because i'm just stoked at how pretty it is and how beautiful a lot of the fish are and i don't even want to kill them so i just swim around and 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 check stuff out and maybe eat a scallop or something and it's so beautiful like when you get out in nature are you reading any good books or watching any documentaries right now that you would recommend well i one thing i would recommend that i did a few weeks ago was uh taking a free diving course 
which you can do sort of on your own through through apps that you can download, uh, like free diving apps for your phone that teach you a lot of the breathing techniques and the safety and such. Or you can take a free diving course through Performance Free Diving Institute, uh, PF, PFI. Okay. Um, and it's just a simple weekend course. It's like a Friday night, Saturday day, Sunday day. And I loved this and I would recommend it honestly for anybody that spends time in the ocean because it improves your understanding of your own physiology. And you, you learn after this course that, okay, you know how to recognize what's the feeling of oxygen deprivation and what's the feeling of just having too much CO2 in your body. Okay. And that distinction and really knowing allows you to establish a a new level of confidence when you're in the water because you're like okay now I know I need to breathe or no I don't need to breathe right now I'm actually fine this is just a sensation of discomfort and when you learn these breathing techniques that allow you to hold your breath longer yeah that you also realize that wow this can really lower my heart rate so this can help me in a stressful situation that's on land I don't even need to be in the water to get a benefit from that so I can do this relaxation breathing technique when I'm sitting at my desk if I'm if I'm feeling stressed I can do it if I'm in traffic and I'm yeah. pissed off about something I can start doing this technique and so it's really empowering and then I can and then also in the water I know that now if I'm if I'm getting held down surfing, that most of that is just the CO2 thing again. And I can hold my breath for a lot longer than the wave is going to hold me down in in most cases. When before I'm thinking, I'm like, I need air now. I actually, I actually don't. And I know that I can relax. Yeah. It's super interesting. I mean, I went into this thing having such low expectations for myself of what I was capable of. And literally in 30 minutes of having this amazing instructor teach these techniques, I was thinking, oh, maybe I can hold my breath for two minutes, like two minutes. I'd feel like really good about, and I don't even know if I can do that. And 30 minutes later, after doing these techniques and having someone there spotting me, I held my breath for over four minutes underwater, which I was like astounded by. Like I, for four minutes, like blew my mind. I never thought I would have been able to do that. And that was without even me doing training. Right. That was just practicing a, a technique and, and having better understanding of my physiology. So I think anybody who swims, surfs, dives, spends any time in the water, you would, you get so much out of this small class. Um, you'll probably meet some cool people in the class and, um, you'll learn the safety techniques too, which you could use to save somebody who had, who either panicked in the water or who had a diving incident or surfing whatever that like you can act in that split second moment and maybe save somebody's life or to save your own if you notice certain certain signs and symptoms of something happening so just a really empowering class and i would definitely recommend that that's awesome i will definitely check it out and it's like like they offer them all over the yeah i'm as far as i'm aware they offer them all all over the place and uh, i know out here in california there's a few times a year up and down the coast and I'd imagine the same thing on the east coast and probably inland too I would imagine that they have them in lakes and, and even in pools and stuff so all right cool um, I'm gonna check it out that's something I would do just because I always you know I'd so like I think it's like important to be able to kind of like get the breathing in the water down and be able to mm-hmm. see like what you're made of like what you can kind of do so not to freak out if you need to stay underwater or if you're stuck underwater yes exactly uh and then you just walk away and you feel better about your own physical capabilities and knowing that you push your comfort zone a little bit yeah and now you have that like extra confidence yeah so love that and then speaking of of a book that i loved that i read recently that i would recommend was rick Ridgeway's book, Life Lived Wild. Have you okay. heard of, of him or that book? No. His, his name is Rick Ridgeway, and the book is called Life Lived Wild. And it's all so Rick is uh, really good friends with Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia, and um, Doug Tompkins that, that founded North Face, who passed away a number of years back. Um, 
And then he, he basically is this incredible adventurer that mainly specialized in mountaineering, but also his, his whole thing was like going to some of the last remaining truly wild places on earth and documenting them usually through some, some sort of, of conservation project around an animal or a natural resource that, that helped fund the, the trip. So Sometimes it's a jungle. Sometimes it's something in the Arctic. Uh, a lot he of sounds familiar. Like the book sounds familiar. To yeah. Me. Yeah. 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 Um, just a, a really inspiring collection of stories and really relatable, even if we're, you're not like an extreme athlete on a, on a human level and the, the challenges that he experienced and, and overcame and how, how he dealt with it and how a lot of this, this living a life where there was a lot of loss of, of friends um, and a lot of triumph in the formation of these incredible friendships through shared experiences shaped him into who he is today and what he did with all of that. And uh, really, that sounds amazing. That's a great book recommendation. Yeah. You got one for me. This was a really awesome book that I read recently. I read a lot of nonfiction. So it's the science and technology of growing young. And it's all about like all the cool technology and science that is out there that's helping people live longer, healthier. Mm. So like all that the stem is cells. Awesome. Yeah, stuff, we're both, like we're both at this age where we're like, give me youth yeah. now. <laughs> well, also like, and, yeah. And Cling also like I learned a lot about like different tests that you can do to stay healthy and, you know, all the money that it costs to create and, you know, and when will it come available for people with health insurance and uh-huh. I don't know this this guy Sergey Young is pretty interesting so I, I thought it was interesting it's not anything that you don't know but it kind of just like sums it up from like the CRISPR technology to you know all mm-hmm. the data that we have on our life from like sleep data to like all the wearables perfect well for shark bands I mean the mission is to empower people to enjoy the ocean to the fullest so all right to be continued thank you Thank you, Marnie. So so great hanging with you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, Marnie on the